Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Welcome to today's episode where we are going to get personal. I'm going to share with you some of my own journey, and I'm going to start as far back as high school, talking with you a little bit about my path. And, you know, at that time, I didn't necessarily know what my intuition was, but I did have experiences that really shaped my perspective and my worldview. So I'm going to share with you some of that and also bring you through my university life, becoming a professional and working in the community sector, how my intuition grew along the way, and also what did my path to creating impact look like? And how did each chapter of life shape the process that unfolded? So a couple of things that you all may or may not already know about me is that I am a recovering people pleaser and a recovering perfectionist. And I've had a very privileged upbringing, thanks to my parents who are both visionary, hardworking, self-made professionals in their respective fields. And so in my life, from grade five until grade 12, I went to an all-girls independent school in Toronto. There were great expectations placed on every student. Some would say it was a bit of a pressure cooker. But for me, it really cultivated even more pride and excellence for me as a person and as a student. In retrospect, having now gone to university and done a master's degree, my grade 11 and 12 in high school were the most academically rigorous time of my life. And I say that laughing, but it's absolutely true. And my parents didn't put pressure on me to be perfect. They would say, do your best. And I think I knew that my best was really, really freaking good. So I always wanted to get 100%. I was like diehard honor roll. I think it's, it's safe to say I put a ton of pressure on myself. So. In grade 11, I was in this enriched math class that was very, very demanding. And so what I would do at that time is that I would come into school early to go to my teacher's office hours so that I could get extra help. And at the same time in grade 11, I, for some reason, opted to take grade 12 chemistry. I think I knew I needed to take a science requirement before I graduated. I really, really struggled. And I struggled so much that my need to come in early and meet with the chemistry teacher was getting in the way of me coming in early to meet with the enriched math teacher. And it just started to feel a little bit nightmarish. So I did something that I'd never done before. I went to my guidance counselor and I told her that chemistry was not working and I needed to drop the class. And when I dropped the class, it was amazing. I suddenly, for the first time, understood what it meant to release expectations, to release the pressure and see how space opens up to then invite in something that could be fulfilling. Towards the end of grade 11, my, I can't remember if it was the guidance counselor or the principal, but somebody approached me and said, you know, you're going to need to get a credit in order to fulfill that science requirement. We are doing an experimental course that's called Environment and Resource Management. Basically, we're going to send a small group of students out to Vancouver Island 
for three weeks, you're going to be in the coastal temperate rainforest. You're going to learn about how things work over there and experience kind of a different way of life. It sounded really cool. So I signed up. My parents were super supportive of it. I think most of all, I was relieved that I could get my science credit fulfilled over three weeks during the summer, having a wonderful adventure. And that trip to Banfield, BC, which is this tiny little inlet on the west-facing coast of Vancouver Island. Now that I look back, that trip completely changed my life. It changed my brain. <laughs> it changed the way that I experienced reality. And to give you an idea of what that looked like, myself and this, I think it was maybe six students total, we had to fly as a group to then take a ferry to then meet up with the people who would be our teachers for a couple of weeks, who I think were PhD students. And we would go every day out into the forest and learn the different species, learn about resource management and how you analyze the health of ecology, how you look at a forest and understand, is this a, a clear cut forest that's going to regenerate quickly or not? The thing that really stands out in my mind was that the very first night we got there, we are presented with this incredible buffet of food. And they said to us, only take as much as you can eat. Don't take more. We have lots of food. There will be more for you if you want it. And so we all ate our first plate of food and the food was so good that basically myself and the other students went back and took more for seconds. And I didn't finish my plate probably half the plate was filled with food and I had no consciousness of it. I thought like, I did pretty good. This was an epic meal. And when we went into the kitchen to help clean up, because it was a very congregate collaborative sort of space, part of the expectations in that home was that we were given a lot of roles and responsibilities to clean up, to take care of our space, to partner with our teachers, to really have ownership over that life that we were living over the time we were there, I went in and, and one of the teachers said to me, what are you doing? Why is there all that food that you're pouring into the compost? And they weren't judging me. They were just genuinely shocked that somebody would take that much food and then throw it out. And witnessing that shock suddenly made me realize that there were things I was not aware of. So just from the very first day learning the house rules and learning the expectations, my mind really started to open around the level of consciousness that this experience was bringing to everyday life. And in the end, the things that we studied, learning about stakeholder relations, stakeholder engagement, environmental conflict resolution, that was a very active part of the curriculum. And so each day we would spend time in the forest learning about the species. Then we would actually go and meet with one of the different stakeholders in the resource landscape there. So one day we went and met with a man who was a logger and he was a solo logger whose business had been shattered when one of the major corporate commercial logging companies had come to the island and so he talked to us from his perspective one day we went and met with an indigenous community living off of the land where they were and we learned about the impact that commercial 
clear-cutting had had on their community. Then we actually spoke with someone who was from the company that had come in. So by the time I got back to Toronto, halfway through the summer, my entire orientation to the world and the way that decisions get made changed. I don't think I knew what lobbyists were before I went on that trip. I didn't understand what policymaking was. I knew that there were laws, but I didn't understand the way in which policy is formed that then directs how resources are moved, how we look at sustainability. So my, my entire way of understanding how the world worked just expanded in this massive way during three weeks. And I had this, I wouldn't have called it spiritual at the time, but I had this physical experience of being held in the most beautiful land I'd ever seen. And don't get me wrong, I had spent a lot of time in nature, so I thought I went to an overnight camp every summer from my, you know, childhood into my teenage years where I would go on canoe trips, I'd been in northern Ontario, but to be with these ginormous trees and to be with people who cared so much about the earth and about what we were doing to our planet that they would teach me that I should only put as much food on my plate as I would eat and I shouldn't use anything that I didn't need. It really is the foundation of who I've become, both in my professional career in the nonprofit sector and what I chose to study, but also when I think about my orientation through my intuitive work, the journey that I've been on was very much shaped by that and being held by this beautiful nature where I could walk into the intertidal zone and see starfish and see an enemy and creatures that I didn't even know existed as a life form to have a relationship with, let alone the trees, let alone breathing the air and meeting the people who lived in that place. It just changed how I understood life itself. And so coming out of that experience, I knew that it would be important for me to study something in my post-secondary education that connected environment and resources with economy and with government or policy. And I didn't know if that existed, to be honest. I didn't think it did, but I thought, okay, well, it'll be interesting to see, like, to see where I can find a program that would do something like this. So for my undergrad degree, I went to the University of Chicago. I moved to a new city with the support of my parents, and I knew one other student who was there from my high school, and otherwise I knew nobody. And so for me, it was really this brand new beginning of being on my own, living in a dorm with a roommate, and discovering who am I now in this new environment surrounded by new people. I thought that I wanted to study environmental science until I realized that organic chemistry was the core requirement to do that program. And when I looked at all the syllabi, it also showed that the, the environmental science program at University of Chicago was a heavily technical science-based program. So I took a whole bunch of different classes. And part of why I even chose that university was that they have this incredible program where in the first two years, you follow a mandatory liberal arts curriculum. So you're expected to take three courses in the humanities, three courses in the social sciences, a biology requirement, 
a math requirement. You even had to do a mandatory physical education requirement, which was so cool. And so I really liked the fact that the university required this. And I could continue to just explore all the things that I was curious about without having to make a decision. And meanwhile, while I was doing those things, I was thinking to myself, okay, <laughs> what, what am I going to study at the end of this? Because a lot of people come into university knowing that they want to go into business or they want to go into pre-med or pre-law or what have you. So the next story I want to share is after I've done a study abroad. So I went to Paris for a semester and studied French philosophy and had a really wonderful experience. And this was in 2005 when I was in Paris. There were massive riots happening in the Parisian suburbs. And where my dorm was, was not in the, what was called the Cité Universitaire, which is literally the university city in the downtown where all of the international students live. They had created a suburban extension of that. So my dorm was in the same neighborhood as where people were setting cars on fire and talking about racism and talking about oppression. And during the time that I'd left for my study abroad, I had really been reflecting on how problematic it seemed to me that I could be a sort of tourist student, you know, come from Canada, pop into Southside Chicago, have this wonderful life where I can go to this elite university and access the city while on my walk to school passing people who did not have that privilege. And I didn't even know local people in the neighborhood, but I was able to gather what was going on. I felt like these privileged students were just kind of gallivanting around. And meanwhile, you know, the, the guy who worked in the coffee shop who I talked to every day got shot one day because he lived on the wrong side of the esplanade. And got caught up in some trouble. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So my time in Paris, when all these riots were happening, really pulled my rose-colored glasses off the fact that you can be in a place and have ambivalence about what's going on. But if you have clarity on why you're there and what you're trying to accomplish, and if you have awareness of power and context, and some cognizance in how you're carrying yourself in that place, then you can still achieve a lot. And you can let that place change you and let the way that the place change you impact who you become in the world. So during my time in Paris, I thought about it and I said, I'm feeling really ambivalent about my life in Chicago, but I'm okay being in Paris while this is happening. So what is it that's stopping me from making the most of my time in Chicago? What's holding me back? And if what's holding me back is feeling like I'm not having enough of an impact, then I need to look at what I'm doing there to figure out how can I actually orient myself toward meaning and towards change. I knew I had a lot of learning to do and you know, I never forgot about this dream that had come alive in me that summer in Banfield. I had just never seen how there could be a path to follow where I could study sustainability in a way that looked at the different structures. Now, when we talk about impact, 
the university experience that really set me on my path toward impact was a class called Urban Structure and Process. It was taught by a very famous urban sociologist laying out what would ultimately for me be the foundation of my understanding of how urban life came to be. I took the class and of course I became a sociology major. I came to have this very deep understanding of systems that make our society run the way it does. And so I felt like my knowledge had expanded in how I could see things and frame them. But I also knew that I wasn't like a neoclassical economist like many of the economic students at University of Chicago, because that's the field it's really most known for. And so I felt kind of had an impasse as I was graduating, because I thought, I still really want to understand the way that environmental sustainability plays into the systems and structures of our society. And I want to be able to do that looking at economic factors and political factors and community factors without being forced into a heavy mathematical background. I really wanted to understand, like, how does it work and how can we change it? And so when I graduated from University of Chicago and all my friends, it felt like were going to become investment bankers on Wall Street or in downtown Chicago or in London. And all the people who weren't becoming investment bankers were going to become consultants at like really fancy consulting companies. And so as life would have it, I discovered that there was a field called ecological economics. And in Canada, if I'd wanted to come back to Canada and study that field, I would have had to do a PhD. And to me, I didn't really think I wanted to do a PhD. But I noticed that if I were to leave Canada and leave the States and go to Scotland, I could do an ecological economics master's degree that would be complete in one year. And when I read what was involved in the program, it really aligned with all of those things I wanted to study. It didn't require theoretical mathematics to do the program, or chemistry for that matter. But it did involve understanding a lot of different systems, which is what I was very curious about and learning about the history of resource management, how projects would be designed and valued. And one thing I thought was really cool about the program was that there was a focus on how do we value things that aren't actually monetized in our economy. And it turns out in the field of ecological economics, there is methodology to account for those things. And it's actually an emerging field that is trying to bring a different kind of understanding to the value of non-quantifiable, quote-unquote, assets. And so I thought this was all really interesting. And I thought it was cool that I could go for one year. And I loved to travel and I loved new experiences. So it felt to me like things were aligning. And that even though, you know, one moment I would feel like I'm not choosing this path that everyone else that I'm studying with is choosing of either becoming an investment maker or a business consultant or going to do a PhD, something felt right in me in terms of picking a program that really would answer this question that has been burning inside of me since grade 11. So I ended up moving to Scotland. It felt like a new adventure to me. And I felt very empowered and very joyful, even though I couldn't quite tell where it would lead. And I didn't have an answer when 
you know, my parents' friends would say to me, like, what are you going to do? A lot of people assumed I would just go do a PhD after. And I didn't know what I would do. I really didn't. In a way, that program taught me that my own inner drive and my own curiosity are the most important things to help me learn what I need to learn to have an impact in the world. There were really interesting classmates. I had one absolutely life-changing instructor who wasn't an academic. He was a consultant who did sustainability mediation. Um, and he ran a course called Participation in Policy and Planning. What I thought was cool was that he ran this class that was a whole day, once a week. And every time I would go to the class, we would spend the morning looking at an environmental sustainability issue and analyzing a different stakeholder group who had an interest in the outcome of that issue. And then in the afternoon, the class was given a consulting project where we had to actually facilitate ourselves using our participatory facilitation skills to, as students, be consultants on an energy and waste management initiative, making recommendations to the City of Edinburgh and to the Scottish Parliament about how they could address this energy and waste issue. And so the thing that I loved about that class and what for me made that entire degree worth it was this loop that was picking up on that very same theme from my summer adventure in British Columbia of looking at an issue and understanding that there are always multiple perspectives. There are always competing interests and different power structures, which I think I really got an insight into during my undergrad. And to say, well, if we're going to be professionals in the world, how can we positively impact not just the environment, but the communities and the populations that are all invested from different perspectives to suddenly be in a course that said, okay, you're not claiming to be the expert here. The people in the community who are invested in the issue are the experts. You show up and offer a very specific skill set. And if the community will have you as their mediator or as their resource or facilitator, then you can help guide the journey of coming together in a good way, in a productive way, where multiple voices can be heard and where a collective solution can be reached. And that just blew my mind. It really did. And it made me understand how I wanted to have impact in the world. And it also gave me a role model of somebody who followed his own inner compass. So for me, I had always kind of thought that academia would be a really great path to create impact. But it didn't fully align for me because I really wanted to start working. Seeing this instructor just showed me that it could be done and that I could actually dream a bigger dream if I could open myself up to who do I really want to be in the world and how do I want to move and how do I want to, to create that impact. I need to tell you one other story from my journey in Edinburgh. This might be the really juicy one. I knew from the beginning that my class would do a study tour to East Africa. Everybody in my program 
was looking forward to our study tour, which would be to Tanzania in the spring. And basically the design of that trip was that over a 10-day period, we would travel to very rural northwest Tanzania and visit different remote communities that had different resource needs and economies. And we would meet with the leaders in each community to learn about, you know, the history of this fishing community or what is the role of Serengeti National Park in terms of that, that area's geography and what are the challenges that it presents. We visited an agricultural community that had been negatively impacted by deforestation. So during the study tour in Tanzania, we had traveled from the original place where we were all staying to another city that was many hours away. And the program director and our guide had designed it very strategically so that we could make a couple of stops and then end up in this final place and then travel back and have it sort of complete a loop in terms of the different communities that we would visit. For some reason, at the end of the trip, one of my friends, who was a couple of years older than me, she was someone who had been a professional working abroad for at least five years before she came to do that master's program that I had entered straight out of my undergrad. And we were on the last day in this other city, and the plan for the day didn't resonate for her. And for some reason, it didn't resonate for me. And I can't for the life of me tell you what we were supposed to do while we were there. But my friend said to me, hey, one of the guides who's been traveling with us is driving his truck back to our hotel, the original hotel that we're staying at. I'm going to go with him because they're going anyway. So nothing changes whether we stay or go. Do you want to come with me? And I said, yes. And we drove on this sort of like an off-road adventure through northern Tanzania, like kind of around the Serengeti. Most of the time, the roads that we were driving on were not paved roads. We were seeing communities as we passed by, not on a curated sort of student experience, but in the way that our guide would do for himself as he traveled back, you know, many hours and needed to stop and get food and do this and that. And during the time that we did that drive, I remember looking out over the very beautiful Saharan landscape, you know, dotted with acacia trees, which I'd never seen in North America. And just feeling the freedom that comes with making a different choice and feeling like all the things that I felt bound into, whether it was a romantic relationship, whether it was thinking I needed to do a certain path in my career, so on and so forth, it all just sort of melted away. And I looked out and I thought, wow, I would really like to create a new life for myself. Like I would really like to do something different. And I don't think I'd ever felt the depth of inner peace that came to me on that drive. And, you know, it's the kind of drive that the other people may not even remember because the guide just needed to drive back to our original city. And my friend was a very empowered woman who just kind of did what she wanted to do. And here I was 
you know, little Miss Good Girl trying to do really well and trying to not ruffle any feathers, but searching, I think, within myself for my own inner voice. And on that drive back to our hotel, I heard it. And I understood that I didn't need to do anything. There was a lot going on in my personal life at the time. And I had felt really complicated in certain relationships. I felt unsure of where I should live. And in doing that drive, I understood I get to make the choices. And I'm lucky because I, I have parents who are super supportive. So it wasn't going to be a big deal. Like it wasn't as if I was going to be disappointing somebody by listening to that voice. But I, I had really felt like I needed to be going about my life in a certain way maybe putting the needs of my partner at the time before my own. I had been very unhappy for a number of months outside of a couple of really wonderful friendships and outside of the spark of impact that I was feeling through my program. I was a little bit lost. And it wasn't until we did that drive that I really realized this is all the choices that I'm making and I can choose differently. And it just worked out that I had a trip back to Canada scheduled right after the study tour in Tanzania ended. And I realized through that drive and then my solo trip back to Toronto and then back to Edinburgh that I had a lot of choices ahead of me and it could be very empowering to embrace them. And on that trip back to Toronto, I decided I'm not staying in Edinburgh for the summer. I actually had a friend living in London who had invited me to go and spend a month with her. And I thought, I'm just going to move to London. And I basically couch surfed at my friend's house for the summer. I wrote my master's thesis. I was invited to present at a conference in Aberdeen. So I still traveled back to Scotland to go present and meet up with my awesome course instructor from the participatory policy and planning course. But something inside of me changed. And I realized sort of like life is here for us to choose. I recognize that the experiences that I've had come with a certain degree of privilege. And that being said, I still had to choose not to be my own prisoner in doing life the way that some part of my mind thought I should. I could choose to do life differently than the way that I had been thinking about it all along. And for me, that was a major breakthrough and a major opening. You know what's funny is that my true spiritual awakening started to happen that summer in London. And I bought a clear quartz crystal and I started to carry it around with me and I didn't even really know why I just felt like I should do it and I remember walking around London with a friend of mine and something made me feel like I should confess to him that I was carrying a crystal so I did and I pulled it out and I said like do you know about these 
And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a crystal too. And that was just a funny little moment, but it felt like synchronicity. You know, when you start to make decisions that are in alignment, certain things just start to happen. So that was just a fun little validation. And I ended up coming back to Canada. I actually, for a while, thought I would move to Tanzania because I was so taken with the experience I'd had. And it took me returning to Canada and really searching within myself to say, what is it that I think I'm going to do in this other place that I would rather go there than back to my own community and see what impact is needed where I come from? And so I decided to go back to Canada and not be afraid. For some reason, I really felt like coming back to Canada almost made me more nervous than taking a job somewhere else. And I thought that that fear was probably something I should look at. And I told myself, you can always move to Tanzania later. You can always move back to London later. You will have choices. And it's important to go back now and really understand, having spent five years away from Canada, who are you now? How have these places where you've been shaped you? And what is the impact that I really want to have in the world? And so I came back and I had a year of sort of trying to figure out what I should do. And I did a lot of yoga and I had my first real psychic reading. And during that time, family members and friends were saying to me, oh, give me your resume. I'm going to send it here or there. And at the same time, I was applying to jobs and meeting up with people for coffee to learn about what was happening in the sustainability sector in Canada, what was going on in the nonprofit space in Toronto and in Montreal, which were the two cities that I traveled between a lot. And I'd applied to some jobs and it just hadn't quite come together. And one day in December of 2010, when I had no indication that anything was going to happen for me, I looked at my phone and I had two missed calls. And both of the missed calls were people calling me about jobs that I had never applied to. But my resume had been shared with them. And so they were asking if I would come in for an interview. And in that moment, I understood something that's really significant especially for anybody going through any kind of a transition, which is that as much as our egos feel proud and stubborn and sometimes keep us small and keep us from taking risks, I understood that it was the power of trusting in something else, in this case, my resume, that actually led somebody to have information that they needed because they had many applicants as well, but they had seen something on what I had submitted to them that sparked their curiosity. And so I could say it felt like the universe was conspiring to support me. Or I could say that I had, without any guarantees, sprinkled tiny seeds out six and eight months earlier and had a kind of trust that I should just keep sending my resume, keep saying yes when people wanted to pass it along, even though it felt weird or uncomfortable. And in the end, the job that I ended up getting that started me in the nonprofit sector was one of those voicemails. And it was someone who said, I don't even know where your resume came from, 
but we have a new project that's starting and it sounds like it might be a fit. And I went in and met with them and they ended up choosing me for the job. So my belief, and this is something that I talk about with people a lot, is that as much as we feel like we should just apply to jobs, I believe that we have a role to play in creating our opportunity. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people who just are born with a leg up or they're born with systemic forces favoring them or opposing them. I struggle a lot with the inequities in the world that we live in and the role of privilege, both in my own life and in the way that I advise others. And all of that being said, to create the lives that we want to live, we need to take action. We need to be brave and courageous and to mobilize. And so one of the things that I believe in and recommend to anybody that I talk to is to reach out to people that you don't know who are doing the kind of work that you want to be doing. And that was part of how I spent my transition year between my time in Edinburgh and the time that I started my first quote-unquote real job managing a community-related project in Toronto. And the job that I got after that job, when I moved into a larger organization leading a project that I felt even more passionate about and even more aligned with in terms of the purpose of the work, I wouldn't have even known about that job except that I had met up with somebody for an informational interview who I didn't know. I barely knew the person who had suggested that I meet up with them, but I had set an intention to be receptive to any opportunity to talk to somebody who was doing the kind of work I wanted to, to do and that I would take it all as learning. I would overcome my fear of rejection. I would embrace the fact that there is a lot that I don't know about how the world works, particularly in my field of choice, and that if I want to create a career in a different country from where I studied, applying some of the skills I have, I should really show up, ask smart questions and listen, and then use that information to direct myself. I would go into some informational interviews and just realize that it was not a fit. It would be a no in my body, that I did not have the same values as the people that I was meeting with, and by the way, you don't need to have the same values, but there needs to be enough of an alignment that you feel good doing the work that you would be showing up to do. So I do feel very, very strongly about the importance of casting our nets wider than what we think is our community. And actually, my very first internship when I came back to Toronto, I said, I'm going to email 20 different strangers who work at organizations that sound interesting and see if any of them will let me take them out for a coffee. And I just thought, who's going to say no to a coffee or a phone call from a recent graduate who wants to learn about their career path? And I had reached out to about 20 people, and maybe four of them answered me, and maybe two of them met up for an in-person meeting, and one of them offered me an internship. And that was the internship. I knew nobody there. It was a cold call email that I had sent to the managing director of this environmental sustainability practice in downtown Toronto. And that ended up being my very first internship. And months later, when I got this phone call where two different seeds that I had sown blindly six months earlier suddenly had emerged as interview opportunities, I was really shocked and very excited. 
And it really felt to me like a validation that sometimes we do have to do things without knowing what the outcome will be. But it made me understand for the rest of my career that I should always plant seeds, always invest in relationships, always show up with the best and highest intentions because you never know what will happen. And you know what? Some of the people that I did informational interviews with came to me later and I referred candidates to them when I was already set up and rolling in my job at the time. So you just never know how those things will go. And while I'm not sure I would say it was intuition necessarily that guided me along that path, at that time I was definitely in a place of being very spiritually open. I was in my own practice of meditating and journaling and setting intentions. And I was connecting to my intuition privately, but I didn't yet have a concept of how it would impact my career. I just knew that I needed to keep doing what I'm doing and that it was working. The biggest thing that changed for me when I started working with my intuition is that I stopped second-guessing myself. And I think if I had a wish for everybody else in the world on a path of developing their intuition, that's what it would be to not second guess yourself, to allow yourself grace and allow yourself some, some extra understanding on your process. So when I think back to my very first reading that I received with my psychic teacher back in 2010, I think it was, one of the really important messages that she gave me at the time was that I needed to stop second guessing myself and really allow space to integrate some of the experiences that I'd been through and grieve some of the losses that I'd had and to just get settled and a little bit more confident and a little bit more clear in myself. And I think when I look at how my intuition has impacted my career, that shift from worrying more about what other people thought than what I thought myself and second-guessing myself to actually having clarity and having confidence, but on top of the confidence, also having conviction that I was showing up to that job because there was really important work to be done. I think the biggest change that came when I started my professional career after my master's degree and when I started the job that I ended up getting through the interview that had materialized after six months of not knowing if they had even gotten my resume, to be honest, was that I shifted from worrying about what other people thought and second-guessing myself and really trying to prove my worth to a place of deeper understanding, a place of clarity and confidence and conviction that I'm in this role because we have really important work to do here and that I've been brought into the role because there is something unique that I have to give that will make this process better. And then when I moved into my subsequent role where I think I really shone and was able to grow an initiative and scale the impact beyond a program in Toronto to become a scaled initiative with more than 12 communities who had 
adopted the evidence-based model for their communities. And while there was much to navigate in the work itself and a lot of growth, whether it was working with different supervisors, whether it was learning to interact with project partners and people who had had lots of different life experiences, coming into my intuition and being in what I would call a more expanded version of myself, you know, journeying on my intuitive path at the same time as I was growing in the impact of my work, I think that really enabled me to, to show up with integrity and authenticity and presence. And so when I talk about coming into your own intuitive alignment for impact, it's because this has been the path that I've traveled on. And I don't think that my community impact would have been the same. I don't think that I would have had the courage or the clarity to do that work and to push the work in the way that I did. And when I say push it, you know, the job that I took when I started that scaling work of a community program was initially a contract for about a year and a half. And I remember my boss at the time said, if you can find money to continue it, we'll continue it. But that's on you. And I found the money to continue it. And I was able to ask questions and learn and really do some research to figure out how do we bring in other people who have some of the skills that I don't have to continue driving this forward? How can we create better tools for our community partners? How can we show up in a way that's decolonizing when we are the program that has the evidence base and yet we want to support other communities who want to do this in their own way because that is the way that will best serve the people in their community. So while I don't necessarily think that my career was intuitively oriented per se, in my free time, pretty much my top priority was my own personal healing, tapping into my intuition, learning to get really grounded and present in the moment, learning to be more sensitive to energy, and also learning to be more boundaried around energies that aren't productive. So I think there's a really, really big interconnection. And I think that's why I'm here now. Because as much awesome impact as I believe that the initiatives that I was involved in have had, that the communities that took them up are now driving, that the incredible team that I had the privilege of working with are now executing in lots of different places and spaces as they've moved forward in their lives. I've always felt really called to not just lead the work that's creating an impact, but to actually get to the heart of the change makers. Because I can only imagine the impact it would have had on me to have a resource who could come from that kind of a place back when I was starting out. I had a lot of incredible friends. I found some great spiritual teachers. I read books. I really tried to inform myself. But I do feel like there's something to be said for having a mentor who not only has done that spiritual work and that inner work, 
but who also has pursued a path of impact and figured out how to bridge those intersections, how to not feel like we have to be carved into pieces in our life and be my spiritual self when I'm with my friends or at a yoga class and then be my badass boss self when I'm in my day job. It's taken me until my mid to late 30s, completing cycles on projects that I led, changing my relationships that I had with organizations that I've worked with, embracing a role of motherhood in my life, and embracing my true calling to step into my power as an intuitive and as a guide and a mentor to realize everybody deserves to experience their own whole self. You deserve that. And that's where having the chance to connect with people who have walked that journey and said, I feel like I can be more integrated. What do I need to do next? You know, I teach from my own experience. And so that's, that's really what it is. It's this invitation to allow ourselves to be whole. And it doesn't mean that you don't think. And it doesn't mean that you don't use your logical mind. You do. You need to. You need to use your brain and you need to use your technical skills and your technical expertise and your professional experience and your educational training. All of the parts of us make us. We just have to be still enough to let all of it come into full view to then be intentional about what we do with that. And when we have everything in full view and we can step into stillness and be present with ourselves and listen, that's when you can really understand what is your truth, what is your calling. And it doesn't all show up at once. It didn't for me. I just went step by step by step. I could hear my own psychic teacher's voice saying, you need to stop second-guessing yourself. You need to stop second-guessing yourself. And so I just worked on stopping second-guessing myself. I didn't know what the end goal would be. I didn't know that I would be sitting here recording a podcast and sharing some of my story so that hopefully you can feel clearer and more confident as you pursue your path to impact. It just so happens that I followed the path and I listened and I've allowed myself to step into that intuitive alignment that has now positioned me to scale my personal impact in a really different way. So to me, this feels like a really natural place to just say, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for being with me on this journey. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you want to connect with me more, please join me on Substack. I will be posting longer-form written pieces about my intuitive changemaker journey, as well as bonus audio content and having online discussions with the Intuitively Aligned podcast community. You can also find me in the Third Eye Library on Mighty Networks, through Instagram at Sydney Rebecca. yes, that's Sydney Rebecca without an A on the end, or through my website, www.sydneybloom.com. I also want to give a shout out to our podcast producer, Wilson Lynn, and I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode.